So uh, anyway, so we're almost done for the gates. We're almost all the way through them. And uh, today we've got a very fun gate, I think. So this is, uh, this is from Nehemiah 3. After them, the Tychonites uh, repaired another piece over against the great tower that lie out, even unto the wall of Ophel. They repaired the horse gate. From above the horse gate, they repaired, repaired the priests, every one against his house. So they built the horse gate, and then the priests, which were right by the horse gate, repaired on top of them. And they actually could repair the gate from their house. They were living close enough, that they're almost their backyard, they go there and they repair that. So we are today going to be talking about the horse gate, and wow, what's that about? You know, we're kind of walking through, a bunch of them make sense, the fountain gate, the water gate, those kind of things. But we're on the horse gate today, what is that? Well, I prayed about it, I was like, what is the horse gate? Because the horse kind of has different sim symbolic meanings. But I went back to the book of Job. Because God talks about the horse in the book of Job in a very eloquent way. And I thought, well, this is clearly what God sees when he sees the horse. And this is symbolic of the horse. So I want to show you what God says about the horse. It's really kind of remarkable. He says, uh, have you given the horse strength? He's, he's challenging Job. This is towards the end of Job. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. So he's like, picture this thing charging into battle. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours a distance with fierceness and rage. He does not come to a halt because of the trumpet has sounded. At the blast, the trumpet, he says, aha, and he smells the battle from afar. So clearly, when God looks at it, he's talking about battle. So the horse gate is sim symbolic of battle, or in other words, in the great, um, in the great words of the theologian John McClane. Welcome to the party, pal! So, welcome to the party. Now, you may be wondering what battle, it's kind of funny, when we first started out Spirit Chapel, we had a bunch of these different series, like we had Battle Ready, The Way of the Sword, you know, a bunch of these different things, God's uh, Renegade, uh, we talked about David, and one of my friends, the pastor, says, do you guys always fight over there at Spirit Chapel? Do you ever preach on love and peace or anything like that? Well, it just kind of like caught up with me because when I was growing up younger, uh, I didn't really believe or I didn't really think about any kind of a real battle. Um, now, I'm, you know, I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church. So my dad did his job. You know, we went through Ephesians and the armor of God and things like that. But I always thought the battle was personal. You know, the armor was there to help me beat the temptation of the devil. And that's what it was all about. There wasn't this sense there was a greater battle going on around me. I just never really had that. And the reason I didn't have that, I think, to some degree, is because I was raised Presbyterian. And that means I was raised with this concept of the plan. I know if you, uh, some of you... Baptist too, by the way, because they're both founded on John Calvin's Institutes. And there's this idea in, in those Institutes of this thing called predestination. I don't usually get theology wonky on you, but just give me a second. So predestination, basically, uh, it actually has taken on, a, a, I think, a meaning beyond what John Calvin was writing about. But the way it's usually taught, the way it was taught to me, was that since God is all-powerful, and since he knows everything, uh, and since he's good... Uh, he has a plan for everything. And there's a master plan that's happening before our eyes. Now, there's sometimes things we don't understand in that plan. Uh, but if we don't understand it, we have to simply trust the plan. And in fact, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that every Presbyterian knows by heart because this is the argument stopper for them. It's Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So basically, don't try to figure it out. You can't. 
And this is an argument killer because anytime you're saying, but I don't get, well, no, it's okay. You won't get it. You won't understand it. You simply have to trust the plan. Uh, and before we started Spirit Chapel, I met with a lot of pastors. One was very wise. He told me, whatever systematic theology you have, it will last one year of your pastorate and no more. <laughs> Mine made about a year and a half. And, and then I just started having these doubts about the plan because it didn't seem to fit. And I didn't like the fact I wasn't allowed to ask about it because I was like, I want to know. You know, there's some things going on. And the plan's cool, you know, whenever you're living in an affluent America like we do. We have this idea that it's okay because in our, in our life, things aren't so bad. Even, even if they seem bad here, it's not like what you'd find in Ethiopia or Haitia. You know, it's, it's just completely different. And so it's a little easier to believe in a plan that things are going to work out all right. You know, we can sing the song with little orphan Annie. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow and looking forward to tomorrow. We can be optimistic. It's easier in this world than it is in some other places. But then something happens like 17 kids are killed in a high school and you start questioning the plan, right? You can't help yourself. Or something personally happens. You lose a loved one. And you start wondering, what is the plan here, and, and what is that? And so when I, when I really just kind of said, okay, I'm not sure I believe in the plan, but I still believe in you, Lord. What do I do now? Uh, he took me to Job, and we actually did a whole series on Job. The uh, title of the series was, If God is Good, Why Does Life Suck? And uh, it was about a year and a half ago, and uh, we went through it. But in the book of Job, some very interesting things happen. And you know, Job is, is, a, is a really good example of something bad happening to a very good person. The book of Job starts out by saying, hey, Job is totally righteous. And he just flat out says he's totally righteous. God loves him because he's righteous. God actually protects him and blesses him because he's righteous. And the devil's angry at that. And so he asks to be able to show God that, that, that Job will curse him. And so God takes the protection away and the devil attacks, right? Nothing, nothing that Job has done is wrong. Nothing. And I uh, get a little angry when pastors try to hint that there is something wrong with his character. The Bible t is clear to say he is totally righteous. And so uh, he gets attacked, and then he has these three friends uh, you know, come to him and comfort him. And they bring along a younger kid. I guess he was carrying their bags or whatever. And so, uh, like a younger guy, about 20s. And they sit there for days with him while he's suffering. And they start, they start telling him, if you read through, it's poetry, so it's a little bit tricky. Uh, but if you read through Job, you'll see these guys basically spout out every theology that man's come up with. They start off and say, well, clearly you have sin in your life that no one sees. God's punishing you. Repent and you'll be, you'll be healed. And he says, no, that can't be true. They start kind of walking through everything. And they finally get to, the, the young guy finally speaks at the very end. He says, basically, you know, just trust the plan. I mean, that's a, a, I'm boiling it down, but it's pretty much what he says. So they're all laid out. In fact, one guy says, well, um, look, dom dominion and fear belong to God. He makes peace in high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? He's basically saying, Job, it doesn't matter how great or how small your sin is. It's still sin. And so whatever God does to you, however he chooses to punish you, if he wants to torture you with boils, you know, that's okay because you're still sinful before God. And that's what he says. And then the young man speaks. Because Job says, well, I want to speak to God. He says, I wish I had a chance to face my accuser. If I've done something wrong, let God tell me I want to speak to him. And the young guy talks and says, no, you don't. You don't want to speak to God. He's way more righteous than you. And you have to trust that he knows what you don't know. And then God shows up. Now, it's interesting because you would think that if any one of these guys' theology was right, God would have stopped and said, now that guy had it. But he doesn't. In fact, he kind of comes in and tells them all to shut up. Um, so he comes in and this is what he says. He says, 
Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? In other words, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You know what my plans are. How are you sitting here telling Job about my plans? You have no clue what my plans are. You don't understand what's going on. And he goes from there and he starts describing to Job what's, what's going on. But he doesn't answer any of Job's questions. Not one. He doesn't address anything Job's addressed. What God does is he lays out a picture of the world I had never seen before. He lays out this picture that what has happened is that his world has been corrupted and perverted by sin. And usually when we talk in terms of perversion, we use it in a certain way. You know, when we talk about somebody being perverted, we're always talking in terms of sexual perversion. But the word perversion just means to take something and twist it and use it for a purpose it wasn't supposed to be used for. People do this with words all the time. In political campaigns, for example, people take words, twist them and pervert them, and then use them, right? And so there's a lot of different kind of perversions. Everything in the world that you don't like, actually, is a perversion of what God created. And it's been perverted and twisted and used in different ways. That's what happened when sin entered into the world. And that's what God starts telling Job. That there's chaos in the world that he didn't create. There's evil in the world that he didn't create. What's happened is this is perverting and it's trying to crush mankind and he is working to keep it back. He talks about the weather that he's back in the, in the seas and these big beasts, the behemoth and, and the leviathan. And he says, I'm keeping all this stuff, all this chaos at bay to keep you alive. I work every day to keep chaos away so you all can live and you're going to come and talk to me about how I'm evil. You don't know how hard I'm working just so you can live. It was a new picture. I always thought God was kind of the CEO of heaven, sitting you know, on his big kind of you know, desk and tapping his fingers, you know, having his angels come and you know, maybe a cloud becomes a like, translucent screen. He can look at the earth and there's something. That's how I always viewed God. I never saw God as a hands-on God still. But the way he describes himself in Job, he's still very much hands-on. And he's working to keep the chaos away. And basically, you know, McLean has it right. Welcome to the party because we are in a battle. And, and the fact is we're in a battle not between good and evil like most people think. We're actually in a battle between sin and righteousness. Because sin has perverted the world and it's driving more chaos and more things. And it grows. I don't know if you've noticed. It gets worse over time. And righteousness is the response to that. So God tries to make us righteous to drive back sin. And if we had more righteous people just living here, we'd be driving sin out just because they're here. So God's trying to make us righteous, not because he likes us to be goody-goody, but because he realizes that righteousness on the earth pushes back the sin on the earth. And there'll be less perversion, and there'll be less things happening. And sometimes what we're seeing, and we try to blame God for, is actually just the result of our sin. But we are definitely in a battle, and we have to recognize that. Okay, so where do we go from there? So we're in a battle, and we're fighting, and what are we going to do about that? And I was praying, okay, God, there's a lot of different ways we can now talk about being in a battle. Ephesians is a good one. Let's talk about the armor of God. And every time I kind of got started the sermon, I felt checked. Like, nope, don't got it, don't got it, don't got it. And then I'm like, man, where am I supposed to go with this then? I'm supposed to be talking about battle and everything I want to talk about. I want to go in the Old Testament. I want to take one of David's battles and shit. I love that stuff. And I just kept not getting anywhere with the sermon until I was lying in bed, four o'clock in the morning, as I always am when God speaks to me. Uh, and, and, I'm, and something came to my head that I spoke here in church many, uh, when we first started the first year and it came out of my mouth during a sermon I'll never forget that happens sometimes and I didn't plan it it just kind of came out and when it came out I thought that's God telling me something and I've used it since then because you know when God tells you something you try to remember it but here is what it is uh, those who pray are more important than those who preach 
And that was the key to where we need to go with this battle. But I believe that. I mean, 30 people honestly praying. Like, we did a thing. We tried to pray for everything. We had tried to do a 24-hour prayer vigil. Try to get everybody to take a slot. We did not fill all the slots. But if we could actually fill that slots and just got like 30 people praying, we would see huge benefits from it. If I had 30 guys preaching for a day, like 24 hours, we'd see nothing. You know, we'd see nothing from that. People who pray are just so important. And we're all supposed to be a people who pray. I love, uh, I love what Daniel says when he goes to pray. And this is one of the best prayers ever, right? And pray, Daniel, boy, he was awesome with his prayers. You know, he did all kinds of things with his prayers. And he says this, you know, he's righteous. But watch what he says. My God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our despair. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. He's saying, I'm praying you and I'm asking for something here and I'm not doing it because I'm righteous. I'm doing it because you're merciful. And that's how we come before the Lord, right? We come and we say, Lord, I just need your help, right? I need to come before you. I'm going to fall on the throne and I'm going to say, I need mercy. I need mercy. So the very first rule with any kind of a fight is we need to pray early and often. <laughs> we, need to, we need to get in there because, because prayer is everything. It's defense and attack at the same time. And I'm going to break it down a little bit. And I'm going to show it to you. Uh, but here's something that Paul says in Thessalonians. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. That's, a, that's a, really a lot packed into that little half of a sentence. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of Christ Jesus. And then watch he says, don't quench the spirit. You know what quench means, right? If you have a fireplace and you have a bucket of water and you throw the water on that fire, that's quenching. He's saying, don't quench your spirit. I have people sometimes tell me, man, I don't know, Pastor, I just, I'm not feeling it right now. I don't, so I don't feel like I'm connected to God. I feel like the Spirit's not moving in me like it used to, and I'm, I'm really kind of a loss. Well, here's your formula. Are you rejoicing? Are you praying without ceasing? And in everything, are you giving thanks? Because if not, he says, you're going to quench the spirit, and that's what you'll feel. You'll feel nothing. You'll just feel, you know, embers. And he says, what you need to do is you need to always pray. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Walking around, you know, saying prayers all the time. It's an attitude. It's an attitude that I live my entire day in conversation with God. Because if you're in a conversation with God, then he can speak to you more easily. Isn't it easier to speak to somebody in a conversation with? You know, if you've got a phone and it's on and you're listening and you're talking, it's easy. You've got the phone and it's got a dead battery, very hard to have a conversation. So he's talking about living in a state of prayer. We're living in a point where we always think about God and we're always trying to communicate with Him. What would be really cool, though, would be if somehow God would teach us how to pray. Because I know a lot of people that say, man, I don't know. I want to be a prayer warrior, but I just don't know how. I just don't think I'm very good at it. Uh, I say my prayer, it bounces off the ceiling and thuds back to earth. I'm not getting anywhere. You know, it's like, I don't know. Kryptonite, I can't seem to pray. And I don't even know if I know how to pray. And I hear about these people that pray all the time. I can't. It's hard. So let me just say two things. First of all, uh, prayer takes practice. Everything takes practice. Come on. Everything you do. You know, I got some guitarists in the audience here. Remember the first time you played a chord? I hurt my hand um, a few months ago, and I didn't think I was going to ever get my left hand back, much as my fretting hand. Uh, my nephew plays guitar, and he's a lefty. And so I said, hey, can I borrow one of your left-handed guitars? I think I learned how to play left-handed. Oh, my God, was that hard. I mean, I was sitting there, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I don't, you know, because now I had the mental capacity of what it is. And I'm like, this is awful. This is what it was like when I first started, though. I couldn't play a note, let alone a chord. How did I get better at it? I made a determination I was going to get better at it, and I kept practicing until I did. 
how do you get better at prayer? You make a determination you're going to get better at it, and you practice with it until you do. It's not, you know, it's not that it's just going to come to you, like I'm waking up one day, I'm a prayer warrior. You have to practice this stuff. And as far as how we should pray, the good news is we actually have exactly an example given to us by someone who knows a lot about prayer, whose name is Jesus Christ. So let me show you this uh, from the book of Matthew, because it starts, first of all, he's just kind of talking about it in generalities. He says, look, when you pray, don't be like all those hypocrites. God must be so tired listening to prayers of hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they can be seen by men. Now, we don't do that in our society. They do it it's still to this day. If you, if you go to Israel, you'll still see it. Uh, we don't do that. We do it in church. Right? We publicly pray in church. And there some people who are really good at a phraseology and they're really good speaking and they've got it down, they practice stuff, you know, and it's intimidating when you hear one of them pray and then like, you know, you, you don't know what to say. It's like, I saw the old Charlie Brown cartoon, their kids are sitting in the back looking at the clouds, you know, and uh, Lucy says, hey, these clouds, what do they, you know, what does it look like to you? And, and uh, you know, Linus goes first. Well, I think that's like the great painting Michelangelo did on the Sistine Chapel. I can see over here there's the chariots and over there there's this and he just describes all this you know and she says well that's really good uh what, what about you uh, Charlie Brown and Charlie Brown said well I was going to say I see a ducky and a horsey but I changed my mind you know it's like it's kind of how I feel sometimes when I listen to some of these people pray well, I was going to pray but now I've changed my mind and I've ever seen one of those prayer circles where you're supposed to squeeze the hand next to you if you're not going to pray you know it's like I was going to pray I'm just going to squeeze the hand and let it pass me because I'm just intimidated by the person who just prayed that and Jesus says don't worry about that because they've had their reward. Everybody thought they were great. That's all they're going to get. But if you want heaven to hear, you've got to be serious. He says, you need to go into your inner room. Some translations call it a prayer closet. I love that. Prayer closet. Close your door. Pray to your Father in secret. But your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says, I want the heart that's turned to me. I don't want you doing it for The conversation with God is supposed to be about the conversation with God. It's not supposed to be about what anybody else thinks of it. You just drop that. He says, and when you're praying, and I love this part. This is like my favorite part of the verse. Don't use meaningless repetition as the heathen do. For they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. So don't be like them. It's okay if you pray short prayers. Do you know that? Isn't that? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's great. Because sometimes I just get bored myself filling in, the, filling in the fluff, you know? Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's like, you're not going to su- surprise God with your prayer. You think you're going to surprise God? He says, no, God already knows what you're going to ask for. He even knows what you need, which may not be what you're asking for. So don't worry about it. Uh, just come to him with an open heart. Connect to him and pray. That's what he says. And then he's going to go on. He's going to break down what's known as the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And some, some, some of you went to CCD class, the Our Father prayer. Uh, and so I'm going to walk through that because each one of this is actually just an element of prayer. And it's a very, very important part, each one of them. And they come in order and they should be there for a reason. You know, Jesus doesn't mince words here. First and foremost, prayer is praise. You know, we have a tendency to think about the praise session and then there's a little prayer and then there's a sermon. Right? God doesn't break it up like that. He says, no, prayer is praise as well. And we see that because that's how Jesus starts the prayer. 
he said, pray then this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is a complex word that means a lot of things. It means you're awesome, you're amazing, you're great, and I love you, and you're holy. That's like all packed into that word hallowed, right? He says, I just, you're awesome, God. You're just awesome, and I love you because you're just so holy. I love you for that, right? This is what he's saying. This is how your prayer starts. That's praise. That's going to be going to God as praise. Hallowed be your name. You know, you just... And if you don't, you know, you don't have to say the exact words. Just praise God for a moment. It's a good place to start with your prayers. Listen, if your prayers contain no praise, you're not doing it right. Your prayer should contain praise. And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but when God creates man, he, he molds him up in out of clay, right? And then what does he do next? He blows his breath on him. Do you know he still blows his breath on you? That's why you have a spirit. So, God breathes life into us. That's how we get our spirit. That's how we come to life. So, He breathes breath into us. And when we praise Him, we return His breath to Him. Do you understand that our prayer and our praise is actually the second part of a breath? Think about your lungs. You exhale, you inhale. You exhale, you inhale. Can you inhale without exhaling? No, you cannot. I want more of God in me. Well, then you better praise to empty that so he can fill more in. We are supposed to be breathing with God. This is what praying all the time means. It means we're praising God and we're praying to God and then he blows breath back into us. And that's what revives us and that's what gives us our spirit and our power. If we're not praising, we're cutting out half of our breathing. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but, but uh, you know, every now and then I've done that because when I do certain things, I end up holding my breath. I don't know if you ever do that. Complicated things. Then I try to breathe and there's nothing left to breathe in. You just can't do it. You've got to exhale. And that's what we do through praise and that's how we do through prayer. Okay. Second of all, um, the next thing is that prayer gives us purpose and instruction. And this we see, this is the very next part of the prayer. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? That's saying, God, I want to see your will done on earth exactly the same way it's being done in heaven. And that means instantly and completely. I want to see it done here. By the way, number one thing Jesus taught. If you ask, was the number one thing Jesus taught? It wasn't to love one another. It wasn't to give money to the church. It wasn't any of these things that most preachers tell you. The number one thing Jesus taught was, I'm here to do the will of my Father. That's it. I'm here to do the will of the Father. By far, nothing else is even close. That's what I'm here for. That's what he's saying. And this is what he's telling us. Your mind now, this is your job too. To see God's will done on earth the same way it's done in heaven. Instantly and completely. This is where we will get our purpose, vision, and instruction. That's what it's for. It's, this is the moment of prayer we say, God, what do you want to happen? What a strange concept that is. We're always telling God what we want. That's not yet. That comes later. But not yet. We're supposed to start off by praising Him. Then we're supposed to say, Hey, what do you want done? How can I get your, or your, your, your will done here on earth? And then we get to this other part. Oh, here, here, here's, here's, a, here's a verse we came up in our Thursday Bible study this past week that I just really love. I don't know why I've never seen this before. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like a horse or mule which has no understanding and which must be harnessed by bit and bridle. He said, he's saying, I, wanted, I love this. I want to guide you with my eye. I don't know if you've ever had, I, I don't know anything about horses, but I know a little bit about dogs and have a new German shepherd at home. And um, it is really something when you have a dog paying attention to you because you can teach him fast. What you want more than anything else, first thing is you want that dog looking at you and then you can guide him with your eye. 
if you're really connected, if you really know what you're doing, you can say, over there, and boom, they go. That's a really beautiful thing when it happens. But if they're not paying attention, you're just sniffing around and running around, checking everything else, butterfly, you know, squirrel, whatever, uh, there's, there's nothing you can do. It's like, I can't. So what they do with the horse is they put a bridle in its mouth and yank it along. And there's a lot of Christians who wish God would do that to them. I mean, if you just tell me what to do and make me do it. I keep sinning. If you would just pull me away from it and make me do what you want me to do, it would be better. God's like, I don't want a horse or a mule. I want to guide you with my eye. I want to say, here's what I want. And just look and say, oh, and you do it. I want to have that kind of a relationship with you. I don't want you to turn you into a mule or a, or a horse. I, I want to guide you with my eye. And so this is where we get our, our purpose and our instruction. Okay, next, God, prayer gives us provision. This isn't what we want. This is always, you know, we get into prayer for the provision part. In fact, if I were to, you know, just to be honest, most of the Christian prayers probably go like this. It starts out with a rather insincere, forgive me my sin. It's kind of like you know, when the athlete gets caught in something and it's a big scandal and so they have a press conference and they have an apology and their apology kind of goes like this. If I offended anyone by what I said, I apologize. <laughs> that's not an apology. My kid apologized like that. I say, you get back and do it, right? You know, that's like, oh, I hate it. That's kind of how we come to God. If, if I did something wrong, I don't know, just forgive me. Blanket forgiving, you know, just go ahead and forgive me. Uh, that would be good. Just go ahead and forgive me. But I just want to say, if you already are planning to sin again, while you're asking for forgiveness of the sin you're asking for forgiveness of, don't waste your breath. Because okay? that's not really asking for forgiveness. It's like, I did this wrong last weekend, and here on Friday I'm going to do it again. But before I get there, could you forgive me of my sin? That's not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness comes with repentance, and that's the way it goes. Okay? So we have to have those two things together. Okay, but then after that we get into the, okay, I've asked for forgiveness, I'm being good. Now here's my list of things I need for you to accomplish by tomorrow. Here's your to-do list. You know, just rip a page out of my Franklin. Here you go. Here's your to-do list, God. Uh, let me know when you get that done. You didn't get your list done yesterday, but I'm being cool about it. You know, so could you please do this for me today? That's usually where we go. This is our prayer starts and finishes on this provision. And Jesus says it's okay for you to ask for it, but I want you to see where it comes. It comes after prayer, after praise, and after asking God what He wants. Then we finally get around to the, you know, this one, which is, by the way, God, I need these things. It's okay to ask God for provision. He tells us to. It's okay. It's right in the prayer. There's nothing wrong with it. Just don't make it a to-do list, right? Uh, so give us this day our daily bread. And Philippians says, look, don't even worry about it. Everything, just go ahead and ask in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, because you're always thankful for what he's done. Make your request be known to God. I said, that's fine. It's okay to do that. There's nothing wrong with asking God for something. I, I was speaking to a couple people recently, and they said, I just don't ask for God for anything anymore. I just say, you know, do your will. He doesn't need your permission to do His will. He wants a relationship with you, right? He wants it. And the reason He wants you to ask for something is this. Because if you ask for something He gives it, then you thank Him for it. If you don't ask for it and you get it, what happens? Well, I did a pretty good job with that. I got that. You know, I nailed that job interview. Yeah, I guess that suit really paid off. I got the job, right? No, God wants you to pray for things so we can say, I gave this to you. And you can say, thank you, Lord. See, that's all with... Thanksgiving. It's always come, come part of it. It's okay to ask for things. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, then God, prayer leads us into righteousness. This is a big purpose of it, and that's why he then takes us into this. Forgive us our sins, as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. It's that last part that's hard. Because what we're actually saying is, forgive me exactly the same way I'm forgiving them. How are we doing on that? 
Right? Because if you're holding on to grudges and hurts and, and you're not letting go, what you've just told God was, hey, I'm not forgiving my brother for sitting against me, so don't forgive me. That's literally what you're saying here if, if, you, if you watch what it says. You're saying, I want you to forgive me the same way I'm going to forgive others. We need to forgive. Uh, we've said this before. Uh, if you don't forgive somebody for something they've done to you, it's like you eating poison and waiting for them to die. It's hurting you, not them. There are so many people holding grudges on somebody that doesn't even know it. They're living their lives fat, dumb, and happy. They don't know you're holding a grudge. You know That person that was in front of you in the checkout line that had 22 things in a 12 checkout line. line you know, They don't know that you're upset with them. They've moved on with their life. You're holding a grudge. And that was a simple one, but there's a lot of stuff. We hold grudges of people in our lives. They don't even know it. Who do you think is getting hurt by that? You are. So we need to learn how to forgive. We need to let go. But we have to also get rid of the sin in our life because sin's what Satan uses to control us. Did you know that? How many times have, have you thought you were going to do something great for God and then Satan pulls you away with sin? You want to talk about a bridle in your mouth. That's what it is. And Satan will pull you away into sin. And what do you think? Well, I can't do this now. You know, I can't do this. There's been times people came up to me and asked for prayer. Well, I don't know if I can even pray for you right now. You know, I know how unrighteous I feel at this moment. Thank God, prayer has nothing to do with my righteousness, like Daniel said, where it's God's mercy. It doesn't matter how righteous I am. I pray for anybody because it's God that does the miracle. I'm just praying for it. So we need to get sin out of our life and we need to, we need to get it out of our life so Satan doesn't have a hook in our mouth. The other thing is that a lot of the promises of God comes from being righteous and righteous is getting the sin out of our life and have a right standing with God. The righteous cry out the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. That's true. But it only happens if you're righteous. If you're holding sin in your life, you're no longer righteous. So, that's the other thing. The final thing I want to get on to in, um, in the final minutes here, this is out of the Lord's Prayer. But there's one other thing I just wanted to mention uh, The prayer is. Prayer is this amazing offensive weapon that is used throughout the Bible. And I want to show you something. Some of you may know this because it's in a weird book of the Bible that a lot of people stay away from, like me. It's Revelation. But I want to show you this because this shows you that prayer is the original version of shock and awe. It's a very, very, very important part of what prayer is used for. But it has a message for us that I, that I think is really important. So let me show you too. This is actually, now Revelation is about the end times. I know that. Don't tell me about my exegesis. I understand that this passage is about the end time. But I believe it's a principle that holds true for today. When he taken a book, this is the, you know, in the end times, the judgment. The four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, the lamb be Jesus. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls. Now watch this. Full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So it's saying these people are holding golden bowls, which are full of the prayers of the saints. That's you. Right? According to the Bible, according to the New Testament, you're all saints. Everybody who's saved is a saint. So he's saying, the prayers of the saints are in this bowl. Okay, That's in Revelation 5. Jumping over to Revelation 8, we see what he finally does with them. Then another angel, having the golden censer, that's this, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, the incense remembers the prayers of saints, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Picture this, right? It's all coming up before God. Then the angel takes a censer, fills it with fire from the altar, that'd be the Holy Spirit, fire from the altar, and threw it to earth. And there was noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. So what happens is, they take the prayer of the saints, they mix it with the Holy Spirit, and they throw it to earth, and then boom! 
This is how, this is how God brings his power to earth. Now, what if that's not only true for Judgment Day, what if that's true right now? And what if there's something you've been praying for and you quit? And the angel goes to that bowl and says, well, can't do anything with this one. It's half empty and puts it back. Let's move to the next bowl, Lord. So many times we just quit. That's why I believe Jesus tells us, do not quit. He tells it in several different, it shows up in the different Gospels. Do not quit. When you start praying for something and God lays in your heart, you keep going. Sometimes you have to fill up that bowl before it's going to come down from heaven. We have to keep going. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't ever, ever quit. Listen, we are called to join a battle. This battle is not just a personal struggle between you and between sin and, and not sinning. It's not just what it is. We are called to join a battle to bring down the strongholds that the enemy has around us. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the enemy is getting bolder. There are things going on today I can't believe that were going on in secret when I was a kid. Like the devil. The devil was a secret when I was a kid. He is bold now. He has got his own church. Uh, he, he has companies named after him now. And, and, and he doesn't even care. It's just like he's right out in the open with it. And no, he just keeps encroaching on territory. Strongholds keep advancing while the Christians sit around and argue about useless things. We need to get back to praying. And we need to get back to righteousness and start driving it back. That's what we're called to do. And here in uh, 2 Corinthians, I'll do this and then we'll, we'll end with this. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, of, but are mighty in God. For what? For pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus. This is our purpose on earth. To pull down the strongholds. Anything that's exalting itself above Jesus gets pulled down. And we're going to bring all these thoughts to people who don't understand what they're doing. Because people right now are hungry for spiritual things. They just don't know who Jesus is. They're still hungry for spiritual things. That's why Twilight was a bestseller. Why do you think? Why do you think all this supernatural stuff is in our, in our culture today? Because people are still hungry for spiritual things. But they, don't, they no longer have Jesus. Our job, the weapons we've been given, chief among those is prayer, is to bring down the strongholds and bring low everything that's trying to exalt itself above the name of Jesus. That's our mission if we're going to accept it. So basically, I'm telling you, welcome to the party. Are you ready to go fight? Would you all please pray with me?